Hello and welcome to the NHRA Insider Podcast with Brian Loans. A blazing fire under the body of the nitro-powered Toyota Camry of Alexis DeJoria, and this is as bad a fire as you're ever going to see. On this episode, it's Top Fuel Gator Nationals runner-up Sean Langdon and Tony Petragon joining the show. Eric Anders is your 2020 Pro Stock World Champion in stunning fashion. We're talking Top Fuel and making predictions for Vegas. Scotty's out on Andrew at 1,000 feet. It's Scotty Polacek for the first time in his career. This is the NHRA Insider. Tony Schumacher. Wow, what an appropriate way to end this one. 28-10,000 to the strike. An instant classic final round. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the NHRA Insider Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Loans, back again. This time, thankfully, with a race week edition of the Insider Podcast. Been waiting a long time for this one. We got our, our whistles wetted, if you will, in Gainesville, and we have been uh, kicking the can down the road. Finally, time to go racing again. This weekend, it's the Denso Spark Plugs, four wide nationals at the Strip at Las Vegas Motor Speedway, and it promises to be an interesting event for oh so many reasons, as they all are. Every one of these races has its own proclivities, its own wrinkles, its own interesting storylines. Of course, we're going to see some uh, some fun stuff going on in Top Fuel. Can Sean Langdon make another final round? Josh Hart is not racing in Vegas, nor had he planned to race in Vegas, so we'll see him again when we go to Atlanta in a couple of weeks, and they will be uh, watching undoubtedly from their home area down there in Florida. It was a wild week of uh, calamity, if you will, in the Pro Stock motorcycle ranks, which is going to leave the Pro Stock motorcycle category apparently short a couple of motorcycles in Las Vegas. The testing that was happening across the country by many teams was punctuated by a couple of very scary incidents at Darlington Dragway as we had Joey Gladstone come off a motorcycle, Chris Bostic come off a motorcycle, and I believe Dave Barron also had his own problems, but Barron is on the entry list, so he'll be able to make the race. Chris Bostic was testing a Corey Reed, Joey Gladstone-owned motorcycle and uh, made it to the finish line stripe under power, had an issue in the shutdown area, and came off the motorcycle at very high speed. Thankfully, uh, his leathers are all torn to smithereens but he was able to uh, be intact after that incident I do not believe he spent any time in the hospital but he was beat up and he is not on the entry list for Las Vegas most significantly Joey Gladstone who was at the same test session of course with Chris Bostic had an incident of his own which was far more serious Joey was testing one of the grudge motorcycles that he races so a street tire style motorcycle that makes ungodly amounts of horsepower He suffered a high-speed crash, and he was severely injured in this wreck. It's going to put him out for a couple of months of competition. He did spend a couple of days in the hospital to get stabilized and get himself kind of put back into uh, somewhat of an intact shape. But multiple broken bones, had uh, big-time you know, contusions, bruises all over the place, lost a lot of skin due to road rash. Very, very bad, very nasty. If you follow Joey Gladstone on social media, he has been talking about it. He was released this morning as I'm making the show on the Tuesday of um, of our Vegas race. Actually, I'm sorry, he was released on Monday, and uh, he is on his way back home if he has not made it there yet to convalesce and recover. I don't necessarily know what that means in terms of Corey Reed and what he will be doing. Will Corey still be going to the racetrack without Joey? Will somebody else assume the role of that motorcycle until Gladstone is uh, of health? enough to come back we're going to watch that all play out over the next couple of weeks but it's a tough thing to lose a couple of competitors in this way thankfully on a temporary basis but it's going to leave some holes in the pro stock motorcycle category and as we know it has been uh, excitement central in pro stock motorcycle the last couple of seasons and it appears as though with these wrinkles that have been thrown into the program uh, it may continue to be just that Obviously, our defending race winner in Las Vegas, the last race winner, I should say, in Vegas was Angie Smith. She's looking to repeat her performance, of course, and our pro-stock motorcycle competitors that competed so well down there at the Gainesville race. We talk about Ryan Ayler. We talk about Matt Smith. They're both going to be in Vegas, and they will be bringing their A-game as well in the desert. Nitro Funny Car category is stacked up and loaded for Las Vegas. We have some interesting names in there. Of course, Alex Miladinovich will be back out again, as will Chris Morrell. And a new name, not new to the world of drag racing or funny car racing or anything else, but Jason Rupert will be at this race with his funny car, another of uh, what have become about a half a dozen independent California teams. And Rupert's been working on this program for a while. 
they have good parts from Don Schumacher Racing. He's really done it the kind of correct way as he's done really everything else in his career. He is going to be having Johnny Lindbergh drive the car this weekend, though, and I've not had a chance to talk to Jason to find out why, but it'll be great to see that car on the racetrack. And if you're unfamiliar with Jason Rupert's career, he is a multi-generational racer. His dad uh, was a competitor. Um, of course, uh, he and the, the Bays and Rupert, Black Plague, the Bays and Rupert, various a string of funny cars they raced over the years um, with success nationally. They were well-known and well-feared across the country, and Jason really picked that mantle up, has been a funny car racer in the alcohol ranks, was an absolutely dominating force in the world of nostalgia nitro funny car racing, and after climbing that mountain and conquering that hill several times, he decided to set his sights on coming big show funny car racing, as so many like to call it. And this effort has resulted in him with a a car with the right parts, the right pieces, and uh, some would say the right driver here this weekend. Jason is a very capable wheelman and a multi-time champion himself. He will ultimately be the guy driving this thing, but putting Johnny Lindbergh in the seat ain't no shame in that game. It's certainly a nice, uh, solid, uh, very well-proven commodity behind the wheel and somebody that can provide feedback as well as uh, work on the tune-up with the car and be very hands-on during this weekend's festivities out at the Strip at Las Vegas Motor Speedway. The top fuel category hovering right about 16 cars. I think we had 15 last time I checked the sheet. Hopefully we put it up there and make it a squared up 16 car field for our four wide drag racing this weekend. And it is going to be an interesting event. It always is. The four wide thing presents at least one or two very obvious mistakes someone will make over the course of the weekend. And I don't mean the same person. I mean we will see mistakes happen. It's just a question of where and when and who. And most of the time, those mistakes come from racers who are not the weekly in-and-out competitors. They are the uh, part-time racers or infrequent competitors or the ones that tend to get spun out down there in the starting line if they're thinking about turning the car around or thrashing on something or if there's any sort of momentary lapse of concentration, it tends to bear itself out on the starting line at a four-wide drag race in front of the whole world to see. We will be racing in front of a limited capacity crowd in Vegas this weekend, as we've been talking about. Seats are sold out to the event. So if you're like, oh, I'm going to go to the race this weekend, uh, you're going to go to it from your own home uh, in the comfort of your couch or your easy chair, and you'll be watching on FS1. We have a 90-minute Friday night qualifying show, which is going to be great. We're going to have a lot of Friday night qualifying shows this year. And then we will have our final qualifying show on Sunday morning, and then final round eliminations will be Sunday night. Also, following our Friday night qualifying show, there will be an NHRA in 30, a new uh, production NHRA in 30, the Women of Top Fuel. It's a really, really neat show. Um, A lot of work, effort, and production value has been put into this one. I think you're going to like it. It's something different than you've seen out of NHRA in 30s before in recent history. I feel as though it's uh, a really good representation of of what our sport's about, history, and uh, really fun watch. So make sure you, if you're going to DVR qualifying on Friday night, make sure you DVR it all the way through and include that NHRA in 30 that will be airing directly after the qualifying broadcast. It will be something you will enjoy watching for show. Guests on this show are Sean Langdon and Tony Pedragon going to have Sean on and I really want to skew the conversation with Sean towards his sportsman racing and the recent bracket racing success he's had and the incredible success his nephew has been having in the junior dragster ranks this kid Caden has won a handful of wallies already this year he has won races at a multiple different tracks around the west coast and the coaching that he's getting from his parents and from Sean has certainly been paying off because this kid is a uh, a killer He's a young guy, of course, but in the Juju Dragster ranks out west, he has quickly become one of the people to fear in Division 7 competition. I want to talk to Sean about that and, of course, about uh, not just the, the ins and outs of his sports and racing. I'm not, not really interested in the nuts and bolts of it, but I want to hear from him about the attraction to this culture of big money bracket racing, kind of what are the things that he really enjoys about it, and culturally, what are the things he can tell us as an audience that we don't maybe understand or know about the uh, inner workings of such big money, high dollar, uh, high stakes bracket racing. And he and I were at the same event a couple of weeks ago in Las Vegas, so we'll share some reminiscence about that and certainly talk about uh, everything that he's got going on, including his thoughts on why we don't see more professional racers hitting some of these big money bracket races during their off weekends. 
and Tony Pedragon will be on. We will discuss all things Vegas. We're going to talk about some of the scuttlebutt, of course, around the city of Brownsburg where Tony is located. That is where uh, the majority of our Nitro teams are located. So he typically keeps his, his ear down to the railroad tracks to hear of anything going on. We're going to talk about any rumors he's heard and certainly get set up for this Vegas race and talk about who we need to really be paying attention to and who might want to really try to turn the ship around. We've only had one race, so maybe it's unfair to say turn the ship around, but there are teams that did not exactly look as sharp as we would have expected coming out of the gate. We'll find out who those are and what they can do to better their chances at the four wide nationals. So with that being said, with that being done, I'd like to welcome our first guest onto the NHRA Insider Podcast. He is coming to us from his backyard in Indiana, and it sounds like he is making a nature film out there. He can hear the birds and everything chirping in the background here momentarily. He's the guy that was the runner-up at the NHRA Gator Nationals, Mr. Sean Langdon. How you doing, sir? Yeah, we got a nice day in Indy, and I'm on the back patio, and they go over, uh, get ready for Vegas this week, and go over some uh, junior dragster setups and enjoying the weather and enjoying the times i got a couple of things i want to get into let's start on the junior dragster front because uh your nephew who has been getting some good coaching from you is uh lighting up scoreboards all over the west coast tell me about this kid because he's killing it out there <laughs> he's uh he's incredible man um it, it's funny because you know he's just since he was in a year old or, or less, he's been coming to the races and, and um, you know, coming to the, the national events and watching me race. And so he's always kind of taken a good liking to the racing. And um, a few years ago, I got him a, a practice tree for Christmas. So we've always kind of done the practice tree thing. And, and he's actually gotten where he's pretty competitive. And I mean, there's sometimes that him and I compete and I'm, not trying to lose by any means and uh and and he there's times that he he gets me pretty good so we've always kind of had that pretty good competition and i've always tried to you know get him to mess up by putting (laughs) pressure on him of like if he he wants to go do something then it's like okay well if you can beat me on the practice tree then we'll go do this or if he wants to go get a certain something for lunch or if he wants to play a video game or if you you know something like that i always kind of try to put the pressure on him like okay well if you can beat me bet we'll do best two or three <laughs> then we'll we'll go do it and he's gotten to the point where like he's legitimately beaten me on this stuff so i i think a little bit of that maybe is translated over to him racing you know now in the junior dragster class where this kid just you can't rattle him and it's unbelievable for an eight-year-old kid just to i mean we, we always kind of joke because you know, eight-year-olds, the attention span's very oh, minimal. Yeah, and and so you could sit there and tell them all day long to do all these things, but I swear, you put a helmet on this kid, and he's like goes into another dimension that you've never seen before. And he he listens to everything you ask of him. You tell him to to maybe move a little bit on the tree, or or do this on the tree, or you know, do this with staging, or do this at the finish line and make sure you go to the mile an hour cone and, you know, maybe lift a little bit to kill some ET and he does it all. And it's, it's incredible to watch and it's incredible to be a part of. And, um, you know, this year we, we put a new car together for him. Just, we saw how much uh, drive and ambition he had towards it last year. So we just thought like, okay, let's, you know, really give him every, every opportunity that we can and uh, got a got a new Haskell chassis, and, and Chris McGee uh, built us a motor for McGee cams, and, and built us a motor for for car. And so he's, you know, we we just kind of gave him all the opportunities, and he's just ran with it. And and it's just been great to see. He's he's got him. Uh, he just got his fourth win uh, in, already in a couple yeah, months. Fourth uh, win last weekend, like at like the fourth different track, and these are like not small wins. Like these are big races. He's winning. Yeah, I mean he's he he won a, a couple divisionals and he won a Wally race in Vegas and then he won a Summit Series race last weekend and and I, I like I told him a couple weeks ago I said man you already got three Wallies and basically two months into the season I said do you know how long it took me to, in my career to get three Wallies <laughs> I mean it probably took me five or six years to get that and so you know it's just uh, like I told him I said you know racing is a big circle easy come easy go. One week and you're on top. So, you know, you, you got to appreciate the wins, but you also got to understand, you know, there's also a, a low side that, 
the other side of the sport. But I mean, you know, the kid's been driving great, and uh, you know, he's just. It's awesome to see. I mean, he's already got a couple sponsors on his car that that's uh, helping him out uh, get to the races, and he's got a couple product deals, and so he's he's working it, and he's he's getting the, the sponsor side of things, and he's winning races, and he's he's doing great and cutting great lights and, and learning to drive the stripe, and um, yeah, it's just it, it's really really honestly just very very cool to see. Um, just to see his success in a short amount of time, but just how much he truly loves it and enjoys it and meeting new friends out there. He's made a lot of friends, um, you know, in the last few months being out in the, at the races. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's fun. I, it's kind of funny cause I was actually there for one of his wins earlier this year. And, and I told my sister coming off the starting line, I said, I'm not going to lie. I think I was more nervous for this final round <laughs> than I was in, in racing for a championship in 13 or, or racing an Indy final or anything like that. I mean, when you're inside the car, you feel like you have some control. But when you're standing on the starting line, I mean, I was ready to throw up. I was so dang nervous. <laughs> and, and it's like it's just a whole different wave of different wave of emotion that I, I haven't really experienced before. Um, but it's just it, it's awesome to see. I'm very proud of him. Do you think at any point, you know, because obviously this is going to be a long season and it starts off slow for us and we, you know, it's seemed like a year and a half since we raced Gainesville, but really once we get past Vegas, it picks up very quickly. And, you know, at points of this thing, as you mentioned, it's a, it's always kind of an up and down wave. And there are points that I think everybody looks around and thinks about how much of a grind this is. Is there going to be any value in, in being able to maybe recall some of these memories that you got with Caden this year to be in those moments where it's kind of like, you know, things are getting to you a little bit to be able to pull back on something and go, man, this kid, you know, this kid's whole entire heart and soul is here. You know, is there, is there any value in that? Yeah. Well, you know, it's kind of funny. We were, we were testing in West Palm beach and that was one of the other races that he had won. And I was showing Connie the pictures of the winter circle and uh, he starts laughing. He says, he says, you better be careful. That kid might be taking your ride soon. And I said, Hey, <laughs> I'll be glad to hand him the keys when he's ready. I mean, it was funny. Yeah. We put something on Instagram and Belushi said, is he ready to race pro mod yet? And, uh, <laughs> so I said, I'll have him in, I'll have him in Atlanta if you need him." So, you know, it, I, I think it'd be awesome. You know, he's, um, obviously, you know, this is the part of the sport where, uh, bringing in the next generation yeah. and it's it's awesome to see what this junior dragster class can do and, and provide uh, kids opportunities like that and um, so you know I, I think it's just I try to maybe do a little bit of guiding um, you know I guess of, of things that I may have missed in the junior dragster class that I think would have been beneficial and I think one of the things is kind of working like with sponsors like what Caden's yeah. doing and and obviously with the social media stuff and so it's just little kind of things that I'm trying to help out I guess just to put in my two cents who knows if it's right or wrong I have no idea but um but I, I just think it's awesome just to see like I said given the opportunity to the next generation of kids coming in you know that way in 10 or 15 years you know you're going to see that that next wave of, of junior kids come through the sport and, uh, you know, provide another set of excellent drivers to uh, put on a great show. Yeah. And, and kind of transition to the next topic. Uh, you and I were in the same place recently, which is the same place we're going this week, which is Las Vegas. We we're out there for the, the spring fling million. Um, it's put on by Kyle Seipel and, and Peter Biondo. You were out there competing and me and Nate Hershey were calling the race. And, you know, you talk about these uh, junior dragster kids and what they, what they personify and what they can do in a race car. And, you know, so often I think when, when we're talking about junior dragster kids with our, you know, NHRA glasses on, at least on, on the NHRA side of things, we concentrate on, you know, these kids going class racing or going, you know, super class racing. But the reality is the majority of these kids go bracket racing and the majority of these kids go bracket racing. Um, it's seemingly these days at, at, at these big dollar races, which you compete at. So you're not only helping to, to kind of coach along Caden. I mean, you're in the middle of battling these kids who are now in full size cars and my God, they are incredible to watch. Yeah. And it, it's, it's really cool to see. It's, you know, it, it's kind of funny cause it's just, you, you pull into the lanes at these big money bracket races and it's, you know, you, you see like, okay, well I have a, a, a younger kid. And, you know, he, he looks a little bit nervous and, and, uh, those are two of the absolute, uh, I guess, worst way to, to look at a younger kid getting in a bracket car, you might be running in a round because 
a lot of these kids that come out of the junior dragster class are just they're they're fearless and they don't buckle under pressure and they go to these big money races racing for life-changing money of anywhere of a hundred thousand dollars to to a million dollars and they don't fold under pressure and they they're they're out there they know how to drive the stripe they know how to cut a light and it's it's great to see i mean they they have you know as many years under their belt racing junior dragsters as some of these guys that are racing the big cars <laughs> have in the big cars. Yeah. So all they really have to do is just make that small transition period of adjusting to the speed of a faster car. And after probably 40 or 50 laps, that transition kind of comes into where you just start feeling natural. And then the speed isn't really a factor in it anymore. Now they're back to doing what they normally do, cutting lights and holding a few hundreds and doing what they do at the finish line. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's great to see some of these, you know, 16 to 18, 19, 20 year old kids coming out there racing for life, changing money and succeeding at it and, and getting this big amount of money, giving them opportunities at such a young age to either invest in the future, you know, purchase a house, purchase a race car, purchase a trailer or something along those lines. But it's just, it's the opportunity that's available to them by their achieved success and in, in what they're doing. Yeah, I mean the talent level is is astonishing. You know, I, I did the the SFG Million Race last year up in Michigan, and and this was the second kind of real premier, uh, huge you know purse race I've ever done as far as the the bracket racing stuff goes. And you know, it's just it's beyond my comprehension to, to watch people, especially you know they had this special feature of the the Friday morning deal where if you put together a perfect run, you get one shot at it. Put together a perfect run and paid fifty thousand dollars, and and we had I believe three people miss it by a single foul. You know, and it's just, and it's, and you're watching Peter Biondo and Kyle Seipel just chew their fingernails down to the bone because it's, you know, because they got to pay. If, the, if somebody hits it, they got to pay. And, and three people just barely missed it. Yeah. And they had to pay it at Bristol, yes, I believe did. it was last year. So, yeah, they know the feeling of, uh oh. <laughs> but yeah, yeah it, it's, it's, uh, you know, that I, I think that's why I, I go do the bracket racing so much. And, um, kind of like my game plan right now is when I get back from Vegas is I'm going down to Tennessee to do a bracket race and then I'm leaving straight from Tennessee on third, uh, I'm sorry, Saturday, Sunday, drive Monday, go run the spring fling and Galat, go run Tuesday through Friday. And then Friday when I'm done Friday night, drive to Atlanta to go get ready for the national on Saturday, Sunday is just because, you know, you're, you're racing for such big money and it's just the, the pressure the, the you know, I, I feel like I have, more pressure when I go to these bracket races than I do at the national events. It's just the, the money that you're racing for is, I mean, it's things that can change your life. And so there's, there's a lot on the line on with these races. And so, you know, I feel like it makes going to these races makes me better to when I go to, to top fuel. Cause I really kind of feel like when I get in a top fuel car, I don't really feel like there's any situation that I get in in a top fuel car that, that gets me, I guess, you know, nervous or, um, you know, where I kind of like buckle under the pressure or, you know, somebody does something on the starting line that's going to rattle me. Like I've already, you know, been in those situations with the, the bracket racing of, I, I've seen the, the, the staging or the starting line games. I've, I've, I've raced for that amount of money or more. And, um, so it's just, you know, to me, I, I think the talent level and the bracket racing scene is above and beyond anything else. Um, I mean, you got, like I said, kids from from 16 all the way, guys up to, to 50, 60, 70 years old racing and competing and uh, and and putting you to the test of being double O on the tree and, and dialing your card to dead on. How would you describe, and, and this is for people, like a lot of people listening to this podcast really don't don't know a lot about that element of drag racing they don't really know about the scene maybe they know a couple of the names they know that some high level drivers like you or professional level drivers compete in that area of drag racing but what would you describe the culture like what would you describe the culture of big money bracket racing as other than growing very fast (laughs) what would you describe the culture like at those races i mean it's i think the enjoyment level is is one thing that so many people get out of it because it's just, it's so relaxed. I mean, from the time that you pull into a bracket race, you pull in and it's like gates are open. There's a security guard out there. They're 
thanking you for coming and welcoming you and park wherever you want and get your grill out and grill some steaks and you know your neighbor may be grilling or cooking or you know and everybody's kind of just hanging out and and it's it's just the the kind of the family atmosphere that that you go into out there um it, it, it's, it's really awesome and and like when we were just talking about the the spring fling in, in vegas and and I flew out and I ran a couple buddies' cars at the race. I didn't take my cars out there. I ran uh, Kyle Rizzoli, 67 Camaro, and my other buddy Bobby Dye, um, his his uh, dragster. Uh, but that's kind of the thing is, you know, like I'll have some of my friends from the West Coast come out here on the East Coast and race my car throughout the year. And there's times that I'll fly out and run their cars on the West Coast. And, um, you know, it's just the, the, the atmosphere is, I think, what makes it fun you know on top of racing for life-changing money yeah um but i think that's just the thing it's like kyle and i were talking after the weekend it was like you know he he called me and said he's like man i had so much fun that weekend just you know from racing with you and, and 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 going over different you know setup ideas and theories and and you know cooking breakfast and cooking dinner and you know hanging out with with all the people that we parked next to and you know just even when we were losing and we were up there watching, we we're just all still kind of having fun and hanging out as a group. And we kind of had a, a group where we all parked together with our, our buddies and just hanging out and having fun. And, uh, you know, I think that's where, you know, it, on, on top of it, it's like I went out there and got my butt kicked, uh, but, but I was able to manage a couple best losing packages. So I was able to walk out of there, uh, you know, with, with not really winning anything. And, and, um, you know, I was still walking out there, out of the winter or something. Yep. And uh, so, you know, just uh, I was fortunate to go a few rounds on the million day uh, in, in Kyle's car. I lost the round before the split. Just lost a good race. Missed the tree a little bit. Was was twenty, but um, you know that's what it takes in those races. Uh, the guy I ran was double or seven, and can't take anybody lightly. And I definitely wasn't taken lightly. Just missed the tree a little bit, and, and was 020 and ended up on the wrong side of it. Yeah, it is interesting. One of the things that impresses me so much about about these style of events is like, you know, you have like a basically what amounts to about a 400 car first round to some degree when you start, you know, there's multiple events, obviously multiple races during the week and and most of the larger ones are going to have hundreds of cars in the first round. And it's just the level of professionalism that the competitors have in terms of like everybody's stuff is top notch. Everybody shows up on time. You're not begging for anybody. It's it's a really interesting thing because the amount of traffic that gets sent down the racetrack over the course of a day at these races is mind-boggling. Like if and for people listening, if you're like, why would I ever go to one of these races? It's like if you're a fan of sportsman racing, you need to go and sit there for a day at, at any one of these big money races, no matter who's putting it on or where it's at, and just watch because it is really astonishing to watch how good several hundred people can be and i mean you see people make mistakes but it's so rare and then as the thing whittles itself down it's just it it, it it's intimidating to me to watch it because i like to think i know what i'm looking at but you just see people putting together these double o packages time and time and time again in a row and it just blows my mind yeah and that's you know something in in the last couple of years that i've actually worked very hard on um is the endurance part of it is, you know, racing in these big races, they start running at eight o'clock in the morning. And, and some of these races won't get done until two or three in the morning yeah. uh, of the next day. Um, just depending on how many cars in the schedule and everything like that. Um, but once one element that I never really, I guess when I was a, a young buck is you, you'd have plenty of energy all day long and you could stay up all night long and it doesn't matter. Well, I'm getting a little older now, so it's a little <laughs> more difficult. You know, I started getting that, that yawn in there about 8, 9 o'clock, and it's like, well, we're in the third round at 8, 9 o'clock. Like, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I got to figure out how to make this work. Well, one thing that just, you know, I've really had to work on the last couple of years is coming up with a, a, a sleep regimen and, and certain things of, of what to eat, what not to eat. Uh, certain things to drink and not to drink. Uh, you know, obviously you don't want your energy at an all time high and then peak out at a certain time and then, you know, get like on your crash or whatever, you know, if maybe you have a a certain period of time throughout the, the day of, you know, of a 400 round race, you know, maybe if you make your run and then you got like a three or four hour gap, 
you know, maybe three or four o'clock of just taking like a, a quick 30 minute nap, a little power nap, um, just to kind of get yourself prepared in for the night. You know, you don't want to go and eat a huge meal because when you're sitting here trying to be double O at eight o'clock in the morning till, you know, two or three in the morning the next day, you know, how are you going to be double O in the morning when you have all the energy and then you go out and eat a big old sandwich for, for lunch yeah. <laughs> and then, and then you got to do be double O just immediately after that. And then, go go hang out in the heat all day long and then go eat a big old steak dinner and then at midnight that same night still be double O on the tree. So I think it's just kind of understanding, you know, yourself and, and keeping your whatever level of intensity you bring at eight o'clock, bring that at noon, bring that at five PM, bring that at nine PM, bring that at midnight and try to understand how to bring that same level of intensity because if you're jacked up on one run and then one run you're yawning in the lanes, you're not going to bring that same level of intensity. And it's all about consistency in the bracket racing scene. So I think there's a lot of things that I've learned from that, that I've actually translated over into the, the fuel class of, of maintaining a level of consistency and, you know, of not eating or, or doing certain things right before a run and, and, you know, kind of understanding your, your body and how your body functions and, and how it reacts to a hot day to a cold day or, you know, whatever it may be. Does it surprise you that there aren't as many guys that uh, kind of do what you do in terms of sports and racing and pro level racing? Are you surprised that there's not as many, uh, you know, top fuel, funny car racers? I mean, there's a fair amount of pro stock racers run sportsman cars here and there, but, uh, but really you're a kind of a standout in that respect when it comes to the fuel classes. Yeah, you know, and, and I mean, I, I say that a little bit of, yeah, I'm surprised be, because of just the, the, the amount of money that, that's up for grabs. I yeah. mean, you know, they're, they're, you raise for more money in, in the bracket racing scene than, than what you do in the top fuel scene. But with that being said, you know, I know the amount of time that I put into, yeah. uh, you know, being able to uh, fulfill my job requirements of, of racing top fuel and doing things with, with sponsors on that, um, but also maintaining my bracket cars and going to do the race. You know, like I said, it's, you know, when I get back from Vegas, I'm going to come back and get my stuff ready and go race Saturday, the following Saturday, Sunday in Tennessee, drive Monday to North Carolina, race Tuesday through Friday in North Carolina, Friday night when I'm done, drive to Atlanta to race Saturday, Sunday in Atlanta. Now, if you're married with kids, I don't see how you're going to make that work. <laughs> right. Yeah, because you'd you know? have the with kids part, but you wouldn't have the married part for very long. Yeah, correct. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you, you, exactly. So, um, you know, I understand that. And obviously, you know, like with Caden going, you know, I've, I've missed a couple races just to go out there and, and be able to help Caden go do the race. And, and, you know, like obviously like Antron's got his his boys racing and stuff yep. like that. So, yeah, I mean, you look at guys like, you know, Jeggy, um, you know, and Dave Connolly and, you know, they go out there and they're very competitive in the bracket racing scene, but they're also, you know, very talented drivers, um, on the front of when they were racing yep. in, in the NHRA. Um, so I, I definitely think that it, it helps, uh, talent level wise, but I think there's, there's a lot of, uh, factors, um, that I guess make it understandable of, of the, the, the time that it would take for them to be able to not only just go and race, but also, the amount of time that it would take to, I guess, get yourself to a, a, a level of being, um, of having an opportunity to win at these races. Um, yeah, it makes total sense. The, the investment you know, is the investment is less uh, interest and more of being able to commit yourself to do it the right way. Right, because it, it's just you know to go race against some of these kids that are racing. 25, 30 weekends a year bracket racing, and then you go out the one or two weekends, it's really hard to compete with them. You know, it, it's just, you know, they, they have everything ready to go. And so, um, you know, it, you, you got to kind of go out there the first couple weekends and take your lickings, and, you know, they're going to kick your butt, but, you know, you might get that, that one or or two good weekends that, that, uh, you know, you're able to cash in that big, big paycheck and, and it, it pay for your year. So that, that's kind of how I look at it. You know, I'm able to still get out there eight, 10, 12 weekends a year yeah. and, uh, 
you know, do as much as I, I possibly can. One last question before I let you go is we, uh, we should probably talk about your top fuel car for a second. Uh, <laughs> so uh, yeah. we're, we're going to Vegas. Um, you know, Gainesville, it does seem as though it happened a year ago. I, and I don't know if that's just me or if it's you and me or, or whatever, but it does. It feels like Gainesville was forever ago. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, it's a while ago, but, you know, I think we all kind of understand the circumstances oh, yeah. that were put in. So, uh you know, I guess as much as I've done racing the last few years, well, I mean, I've been doing top fuel for 12 years now, 11 years, and, you know, bracket racing every other weekend that I'm not racing the fuel car. So for me, having a little bit of time off wasn't the end of the world. I, I, I actually I actually kind of enjoyed it, and I was able to uh, enjoy my house a little bit. I was able to go to California and you know, help Caden a little bit with getting his car put together and, and all those things. So I've been able to enjoy it. I, I, I've enjoyed a little bit of the off time. Um, not to say that, you know, I'm ready to get back in the car when we head to Vegas next week. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's been a little bit of time off, but you know, I don't, I don't think you're going to see anybody, uh, going to Vegas and, and be rusty. I think they're going to the four rides you know, everybody's had plenty of time to prepare their stuff and, and, uh, mentally and physically uh, prepare themselves to to be ready for it and kind of get back in the swing of things all things being equal if you're given lane choice is it one two three or four traction's equal in all four lanes the only one you got to pick is your own personal preference which one is it whatever one's got the wind light <laughs> i don't care it don't matter i mean you got you got you got four lanes and you're you're four wide and uh, heck, I, it, it doesn't matter. I mean, I don't mind. I don't mind. I like running the four wide. And I only like running the four wide because, you know, some some people complain about running the four wide. I like throwing little curveballs into the mix. I like racing in different different things to kind of throw other people off to, uh, you know, just just something different. I, I think uh, you know, racing four wide takes a little bit more focus and it, it shows a little bit more uh, diversity in some of the drivers of kind of being able to block out some distractions and um but i mean heck i'll i'll race it however you do it two four six eight ten <laughs> wide racing backwards for all i care as long as we're going in a straight line and going to the finish line and we can get there first that's all i care about in the event you pick up your second wally of the season in as many races on sunday will shane langston appear in las vegas on sunday night uh well, shane langston's retired he's been retired for a little while <laughs> but sean langston will be there and he'll be happy to get a wally again Hey, appreciate your time, Sean Driver, the DHL Top Fuel Dragster. We'll see him at the Four Wide Nationals in Vegas, and then he can go see him at uh, see him at Galat, Galat Motorsports Park down there in North Carolina before we go to Atlanta. He'll be running at the uh, the Spring Fling East Coast style. Sean, thanks for your time, man. All right, thanks, Brian. Appreciate it. A really cool window into Sean Langdon's approach in the sportsman racing world. Really liked what he was relaying, talking about what he has been relaying to Caden, and certainly what he's able to uh, kind of transfer back and forth. And I hope you found some of that discussion enlightening in terms of the parts and pieces and elements of this society of drag racers that love to go out there and race several times a year for just massive purses. And, you know, one of the things I'd really like to clarify and, and make sure people understand when we talk about, you know, a million dollar race here or a million dollar race there, there are a handful of those that happen in the country now. The typical purse all in for an NHRA national event is over a million dollars. And that's right now. So, when we talk about big money bracket racing, we're talking about specialty events that are paying out these these huge purses. But an NHRA national event right now in 2021 going into Vegas has a, a total purse payout of right at and in some cases over a million dollars depending on how many categories are competing there. Nitro Funny Car and Top Fuel Dragster alone account for nearly $600,000 of that purse at this moment as we speak. So there is a lot of money to be had out there, a lot of money to be won. But yeah, the big money bracket racing scene is very, very fun to watch, very, very fun to observe, and certainly very, very fun to see guys like Sean Langdon and others ply the trade out there and do the best job they can. A guy who's always like a million bucks to me is Tony Pedragon, my right-hand man in the booth, the analyst for our NHRA on Fox broadcast. He is our second guest, and Mr. Tony Pedragon. How you doing today, man? Good. Good morning, Brian. The sun's out, and uh, hopefully the cold weather's gone, and 
Just in time. Just in time to head west to Vegas. I'll tell you, before we get into Vegas, I want to talk about something else near and dear to your heart. The uh, the Pedragon racing genes have been passed successfully to the next generation, man. Your son, Desi, was uh, was kicking some tukas in his go-kart last weekend. <laughs> they raced in the rain. That's one of the coolest things. You know, I've, I've watched a lot of F1 races, and, uh, you know, they, they don't have the plume of smoke or the header flames like a nitro funny car or top field car. <laughs> But they have that that big mist of water coming off because uh, they put rain tires on. And they do that in karting, rain or shine. And it was uh, a rainy forecast all day Saturday, all day Sunday. And and, uh, he's like Michael Schumacher in the rain. He's better. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, it was a wet, damp weekend. But he got his uh, first first place uh, finish, which is the 100cc class that he races in. And he got his second. And he raced a lot of fast guys. So it was a good very educational weekend uh for him he just turned 15 and we're lucky we're lucky we're within about an hour of newcastle and it's one of the premier karting tracks in the u.s yeah it's great man and uh yeah the skills in the rain are like a that's a neat that's a neat little thing to have in your back pocket that's for sure <laughs> that's right so man we're going out to vegas and uh you know it's i talked to sean langdon as a first guest in the show and i said to him it just it feels like it's been forever since gainesville and certainly you know to me the Gainesville thing was a great kickoff for us, but it's almost like the season really starts in Vegas to some degree because once we go to Vegas, it's a very one weekend layoff, and then we get into Atlanta, and things really kind of form up fast. Well, I would agree with that, Brian, and the reason why is is this such a mental game from a driver's perspective. Um, you know, Gainesville it was a little unorthodox to most of the drivers because you look at the demographic and the logistics, and and now we head west. But it's you know you're racing you're racing three other opponents so it's it's a never-ending challenge for them and and what most of these drivers I mean hey Sean guys like J.R. Todd uh, you know Steve Torrance uh, Doug most of these guys that that do this really as a profession you can argue that you know Steve Torrance they, they're involved with the business but but they're still professional race car drivers so it's their job it's their responsibility to mentally prepare themselves. And not only do they have to prepare themselves for the elevation, you know, all the other factors, but, you know, it's four wide. And that requires a big adjustment in terms of uh, not just mentally, but you really have to train yourself, retrain yourself for the additional staging lights. And that seems to be one of the biggest challenges for the driver. For us, it adds a lot of excitement to it because a lot of hole shots, some difficulty that some drivers still have staging the car uh, because of the additional pre-stage and stage lights yeah and that's one of the things i want to talk about um especially in top fuel now do you think does a guy like a justin ashley or sean langdon or a doug coletta did they lose a little bit of that intimidation factor in terms of starting line skill because of the fact that the other cars next to them know that unless you're in the final you only need to finish second to move on does it take a little bit of pressure off other people in trying to match them i think it compounds the the, the challenges and the issues for the driver that's handicapped, um, the non-handicapped drivers are the drivers that you mentioned: the the Antron Browns, the Justin Ashleys, the Sean Langdons, the Doug Colettas. Those are the premier drivers. Those are the quickest reacting drivers. It's not just how quick they react; it's how they stage the car. So there are the mechanics. There's the technique that goes into staging the staging process. And then you have your other drivers that have good cars, good equipment, good tuners. They're just not as quick, and and you can you can blame the clutch and how it's set. You can they can blame the fuel system. They can blame the car and how it's reacting. Sometimes that plays a role in it. I don't know if it's as much as it used to be. Um, you know, for the most part, all of these cars run a certain amount of fuel volume. They run the clutch. You know, it's not far off from what the quick guys are reacting to. So. It really comes down to the driver and how quick they are, how mentally prepared they are. Um, but but that's part of the excitement of the four wide because you're going to get some other drivers that just aren't as quick. And some of the guys that I just mentioned, they're going to try to utilize and leverage that you know that advantage that they have uh, more than ever. 
for that reason. Yeah, we typically see at least one driver that we don't normally see in a in a semifinal or a final get their way there. You know, we see t- sometimes two, three, sometimes even four cars smoke the tires, and everybody gets a little happy with the with the gas pedal to try to get it to the finish line. So it does always provide that level of uh, of entertainment in terms of you know seeing somebody maybe sneak their way through a round or two that uh, normally they wouldn't get by. You know, one of the other things I want to talk about uh, Nitro Funny Car. We have nineteen cars on the sheet this weekend, which is great. And about a half, about a half dozen of them are West Coast independent teams, which is really interesting to me because so many of our independent top fuel teams are based in the East Coast, but the West Coast has become this kind of little incubator of these small single car teams. Yeah, I think that's a good thing. We talked about that before the season started. The fact that you know we see cars like uh, Mac Attack that come out and, and race, but now we're going to see Jeff Deal, we're going to see the Rupert car. You know, Gary Densham there's a guy from the West coast that doesn't typically run, you know, a lot of the East coast races, but he's got a good combination and you can almost bank that, you know, if he's there, if his son's driving, that car has a setup that will solidly qualify him in the show and, and make him tough for, you know, for some of the other racers. If he's there, I don't know if he's on the entry list. He is. Yeah. That car, Steven Densham is, uh, is on the entry list. And, you know, you mentioned Jason Rupert and they have had a, a long time, like lifelong relationship with the Densham family. So Jason Rupert's car is going to debut in Vegas. He actually doesn't have his license in that car yet. So Lindbergh's going to drive it, but let's talk a little bit about Jason Rupert because this guy's a really interesting story. I mean, he's a multi-generational racer of, of course, his dad was very well known. And, you know, this is a guy who once they get that thing you know, kind of up to speed. He's got good parts. He's certainly got experience. I would expect that car and its limited schedule to be a uh, to be a player when it does come. Well, the the good thing is, is they've had a lot of time to prepare for this race, and and the fact that Gary Densham has helped them. You know, Eric Lane uh, when he was when he was here, I know he was providing some yeah. input to that team. So, uh, you know, there's a good chance if if they've if they've assembled everything right and. You know, if I, I don't know if they've had much time to test or, or uh, run the car prior to this race, but you know they're going to get three qualifying runs. And the beauty of having a Gary Densham come in and help you is he knows the car as well as anyone. I, I know that his car has seemed to perform a little bit better when he's had his his crew chief, his longtime Greg Amaral uh, crew chief there. Don't know if he's still with them, but uh, I'll tell you, there's a little backstory with us and the Rupers, uh, Ruperts. Uh, when we were kids, we're pretty close to the same age. We used to go to the races with him. We used to bother my dad so much. He would either just put us in a truck with Dale Armstrong when he had the speed racer car. And if it wasn't Dale, if he wasn't going to that race that weekend, it was it was Bushmaster. And a lot of times it was Rupert. It, it was as if my dad said, Frank, these kids just want to go to the races. Can you take them? And, and they were, clo- of course, good friends, close friends. So we were in the back of his pickup, uh, you know, myself and Jason. He had a younger brother. It was Cruz and my older brother. And, um, you know, of course, no seat belts, just in the back of a pickup. Thank goodness it had a little camper <laughs> shelf. Uh, so we go back a ways, and it's really good to see him finally, you know, in the ranks that he's wanted to compete at for uh, in for a long time. He's raced uh, alcohol funny cars. He's racing the Nostalgia Series and tuned them. So he's pretty familiar with these nitro cars. And if he's been, been paying attention, um, you know, it's it's all about fuel and and air and spark just like any uh, any other car out there and you know the uh one of the most notable cars that uh that jason's dad ran with a guy named richard bays was a funny car that i think has one of the coolest names of all time yeah black plague and, and it really was it was a trademark name and it was how you recognize the the original bays and rupert car and it was such a good looking car they always had good equipment and um you know it wasn't the quickest car but i i'll i'll tell you a story and this had to be late 70s maybe well it was definitely in the 70s we went to the racetrack with them and and they ran a a 666 in a quarter mile and i mean they were celebrating they were jumping up and down and um you know that this was back in that 666 that meant the, the competitive cars like perdome and lombardo and the blue max they were probably running 640 so that was a very good competitive run it was trouble free but it just goes to show you how far Jason has come in terms of performance from from what his dad's car was running, you know, with the smaller supercharger, you know, single mag, single plug per cylinder, and uh, just the evolution of what, what he has in his garage now. It's it's quite the progression, but um, I think he's earned it. He belong- a guy like that belongs here 
and nitro funny cars. Yeah, Pro Stock Motorcycle is going to be quite interesting this weekend as um, we were going to have 16 motorcycles there, but unfortunately there was a disastrous test session that went on at Darlington. I mentioned it at the beginning of the show, but uh, Joey Gladstone had a horrendous crash on his uh, grudge-style motorcycle, which actually hospitalized him for a couple of days, and Chris Bostic had a top-end incident on a motorcycle that he was uh, running and apparently was going to kind of, I don't know, rent or lease or whatever from Corey... Uh, Reed and Joey Gladstone. So we are going to have, I believe, 14. I think there may be 15 motorcycles on the qualifying sheet right now or in terms of the entry list. Um, This is a class that continues to be very, very unpredictable, and I think this is just another element of it. Obviously, we have the Matt Smiths of the world, the Ryan Ehlers, the Angels, but when I look at that entry list, I'm seeing a lot of names that I think could pull off another victory here and keep our nearly unbroken streak of fresh winners alive. Well, you're 100% right. You have the uh, the up-and-coming riders. You know, Chris Bostic, he manages to find his way to some of the late rounds, or at least he did last year. And, of course, um, you know, Gladstone, he's he's just a, a good rider. Um, any of his competitors will tell you that. And, um, and they continue to make improvements in terms of performance. But, you know, it's, it just seems like they're all still going to be chasing Matt Smith and, and maybe Angel, although Angel only got to the second round. But, you know, when you look at her performance, she just seemed to be dominating and qualifying. And even in the first round, she had that 130 light. And, and then she, she picked up the pace, an, an 015, and she got beat on a whole shot by Scotty Polichek. Yeah. So, you know, Scotty's another guy that uh, he's going to win some races because that's a Matt Smith bike. But, you know, when you look at Matt, and, and I know this from experience, Gainesville was still the first race of the year. So it was, in a lot of ways, it was like the Pomona, the Winter Nationals, even though the bikes don't compete at Winter Nationals. But for any driver, any rider, Matt's already off to a good start. He's got the performance, but if you look at his reaction times and how he was performing in the seat, you know, this guy here, he's going to be hard to beat. Now, Angel, look at their performance and what they have with those Harleys and that new engine configuration. They're going to be right there. So it seems like it's going to be another story of the Hatfields and the McCoys and Matt Smith, but he's, you know, he's got, he's got another, he's got another sharpshooter in Scotty. And, um, you know, it's just on gel. You don't have Eddie Craywick. Um, you don't have Andrew Hines, at least not yet. So it, it seems like right now, Matt Smith has got the, he's got the upper hand. And in Pro Stock Car, it is, um, you know, it was the Greg Anderson show in Gainesville. It was, I, I think, one of the more impressive performances he's had maybe in the last six or seven years of his career. I mean, number one qualifier was just low ET of every round except the first round. And um, I don't want to say it was a crushing performance, but for the first race of the year, they certainly went out there and burned the scoreboards down. Yeah, Greg's got plenty of motivation. And Brian, I mean, do you see this as a coincidence or is the fact that Jason Line? Yeah, <laughs> isn't isn't in the lineup, but he's there working. I mean, that can't that's got to be more than a coincidence that Greg's car performed so well because Jason was there and now he's got his hands. I mean, he's spread out. He's working on some other cars, the Kyle Koretsky machine. But I mean, I just think that's more than a coincidence that Greg performed so well, and because Jason Line, uh, along with Rob Downing, but Jason Line's a little freed up, and that that couldn't have hurt. No, it absolutely didn't. We had Greg on the show a couple of weeks ago, and and he, you know, basically admitted he said, you know, last year and the last couple of years, Jason was just spread way too thin, trying to tune on all these cars and then race his own car. And ultimately, it's it's like anything else. You can only you can only go so far before the returns start to diminish. And it certainly seems like his concentration on just the mechanical end of things really helped that team. Erica went out on a on a really kind of shocking hole shot in the first round um, against the, one of the Quadra boys. And she's obviously a woman that's had an incredible amount of success at Vegas, her and Greg. Greg's won there eight times. She's won there six times. And she's going to be showing up with motivation at a track that – she was the last winner at. I mean, she won the uh, she won the finals last year. Obviously, coming in with a chip on her shoulder after the first round loss, so it would not shock me to see them as uh, certainly not shock me at all to see them as two of the four in a in a final quad. Yeah, they're going to rebound and they're going to rebound at the right place. I mean, Erica, she's one of the drivers that are going to that are going to uh, be stronger at this four wide event. Uh, you know, again, because some of the other drivers it just doesn't work that well. And the four wide, it's been around long enough that. Most of the drivers know what to expect, you know, in the first, especially the first race, and then they added the second race, and then there was the second year. It was still relatively new. That's not the case anymore, but Eric is definitely going to be strong. Uh, You know, Kyle Koreski, I think, you know, there's a driver, there's a a win waiting to happen. But one thing that I thought of about Kyle, and this applies to a lot of the 
younger drivers that are up and coming, uh, you know, at this level on the big stage, you, you have to learn how to win. And this is something that I think Kyle is still getting a little tight. He had a good reaction time in the first round. In the second round, it's got to get quicker because the competition ramps up. Um, you know, so pro stock is going to be very exciting, just like bike. You know, there's there's yeah. no guaranteed winners. There's your stronger, um, you know, your favorites. But any of these, uh, Aaron Stanfield, any of these, uh, Derek Kramer, they can jump up and surprise you anytime. If there is a name that I'm surprised not to see on the entry entry sheet, but I'm not I'm not surprised, but I am surprised. Uh, Paul Lee has not entered a Nitro Funny Car in Vegas, and one has to believe. And I've not spoken directly to Paul about this, but you have to believe. Looking back at the Gainesville weekend, I mean, they tore up a lot of stuff, and I would have to believe that it's hampered their ability to be in Vegas. The industry, like every industry right now, is is way out on orders. If you're buying parts, if you're ordering stuff, typically people are behind a number of weeks and being able to, to supply hard parts. And they had, I mean, it was a disaster for them. There's no real way to get around it between the, the bodies that they injured, between the amount of engines they hurt. It was a very, very, very tough way for them to start the year. Well, I agree, Brian. We're never going to not talk about this. And I hope I don't get any text messages or phone calls because if anyone wants to challenge me on sponsorship, I've been in the boardroom a few times. I've, I've put together a lot of big sponsorships. I've driven cars. So I've got some credentials there and I've been a team owner. So I know and I understand all the challenges that a lot of these teams face. Um, and of course, it's conjecture, but you know, to your point, they were three for three. They went down that racetrack three times. They blew. They had a lot of damage up. They blew three motors in the process. Uh, so it gets expensive. And, um, you know, that's that's got to be one of the factors, one of the reasons that they may not be there, especially for Paul Lee, because it's, you know, it's a little closer to home than Gainesville. Um, you yeah, know, that's but, an L.A.-based team. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that's something that, that uh, they have to address. You know, you just can't race that way. Not only does it get expensive, it becomes to where it's not that safe, you know, for the driver. The yeah. driver's got to think, you know, hey, w we need some good brakes, uh, but those fires, they get a little hot. They get your attention. So uh, I'm sure that, that uh, you know, with, with the proper help, I don't know if it's parts failure. It's, you know, sometimes you can go and, and when you try to diagnose the car, you know, we always talk about it could be, it could be something in the setup. Maybe it's too much compression or not enough fuel. There's all sorts of reasons. Then there's parts parts breakage. You know, I know that some of the teams were experiencing some issues, you know, with pistons and some connecting rods because you have companies that, you know, try to make and try to duplicate maybe a forged rod and, and they make it and bill it. Well, you know, a lot of, of uh, manufacturers like Bill Miller and GRP, They've been very successful with the forge rod and, you know, along comes something different, a different material, and it starts breaking. Um, so so those are, I'm not a, a metallurgist, but uh, there's just all sorts of reasons. And then you have to look at your crew. I mean, I, I know that, um, you know, Mike Salinas, they had some, you know, parts breakage and testing. And, you know, when, when they evaluate what happened and, and why they blew certain motors, they, you know, that, that trail of, of, of crumbs go back to one of the guys that's not assembling the engines, the short blocks, uh, you know, in the, in the right way. So it's all sorts of reasons, but uh, it'll be a shame because Paul Lee has a very good car, very competitive and, uh, uh, we hope to see him again soon. Yeah, I would expect um, I would expect to see him in Atlanta. Well, I, I guess we'll have to see how that bears out, and certainly want the guy to succeed. I mean, I'm not rooting against him, but you can you can just put the pieces together off off of that Gainesville weekend, needing to order stuff, and then like you said, budgetary reasons. Who knows the the definitive rock bottom reason? But either way, they want a rebound race. Um, a guy that a guy that really could shine in this four wide format, who got snaked out of a first round win to some degree, was Bobby Bodie. I mean, Bobby was four oh two in the first round. He would have basically beaten almost anybody else he raced except for Robert Height. And they'll be at this they'll be at this four wide format. And if they can string together four oh runs and they can do it a couple of times, there's no reason why this kid shouldn't go rounds. Yeah, I think Bobby Bodie is is a, is one of the, the good young talents in Funny Car. Uh, reminds me a lot of Del Warsham. You know, didn't have a lot of experience. One of the first race cars he ever got into was a nitro funny car. But you know, they spent enough time around them growing up. Uh, they paid attention while they were doing that, uh, and they observed a lot of the other drivers. And that seems, of course, you know, Bobby Bodie was watching his dad, but but he's made he's made the transition look, you know, look seamless. Uh, and he's when I say that, it's not just because he gets in the car and goes down the track without 
you know, traveling a thousand foot racetrack without traveling 1200 feet to get there. Yeah. Um, but he seems to do the right things when the car um, has a peculiar header flame pattern, he shuts it off. So he's feeling the car. He understands that they don't have all the money. There's no reason to keep his, his foot um, in it, you know, so they have to be smart about how they race, but, um, and, and he does a good job. He does a good job on the starting line, car control, the mechanics of everything that he does um, seem to be good. So I, it'll be interesting to see how he performs, you know, with the challenge that lies ahead of him. And that's, you know, racing three other cars. And it, it's when I say challenge, one of the interesting things that could create an issue for some drivers is when you roll into pre-stage, uh, if you're in the number one lane, it doesn't seem to be an issue because you're, you're very uh, adjusted to that. You see the pre-stage light, but you're paying attention to another car pre-staging, another car, and, and then staging. It seems to be the number two lane uh, that, that most drivers have the most difficulty with because... You look at the right side the of the tree, right? <laughs> yeah, you're so conditioned to looking at the left side of the tree or the right side of the tree. Now you're on the inside and there's two other cars on the right side of you. Um, but, you know, if he's been doing his homework and watching races, uh, you know, past races, and, and if, you know, if he's just been <clears throat> going through his mind mentally, he'll be fine. But he does seem to be a driver that has, um, has really met the challenges to this point. Two other racers I want to bring up in Funny Car before I let you go. Ron Caps and Cruz Pedregon. I think both of those guys, both of those teams certainly left Gainesville feeling successful. The results said that they were successful. The number one qualifier for Caps, uh, Cruz making his way to a semifinal round for the first time in a long time. How important do you think it is for both of those teams to kind of continue and not uh, not trip over their shoelaces here in Vegas? Well, Caps was very impressive in qualifying, and it was a little bit of a surprise to see them you know, smoke the tires, but you know, the temperature changes, uh, the atmospheric conditions change. Um, but th th they were so impressive that one thing about this Vegas track, I remember walking it when they added the two lanes, I, I think we did a, an open for our show, uh, at the finish line. So I walked up and down and one of the, one of the concerns years and years ago with the, with the, with the addition of two new lanes was, is there going to be enough traction in the number three in the number four lane as the number one and two lane that get raced get used all the time um and and of course you know those all those concerns were erased years ago when they built those because the track the traction uh at at eighth mile at a thousand foot at 800 feet it's just as good as the the number one and two lanes um but this track is a little unique in that it has to be the smoothest racetrack on the surface and that means no disruptions in how the tuner applies power. No bumps. Uh, they're not going to really have to concern themselves with, you know, sliding the clutch or slowing a timer down or squeezing a flow down or doing something to the engine with the timing at any particular part of the track. So that's really going to work in the favor of a high-horsepowered car like Caps, um, you know, and, and, of course, his tuners that, that set the car up. Um, so look for Ron, and of course, you know, he's not going to be bothered by the lack of experience. He's going to be as good as anyone on the starting line. Um, and that, you know, that really, if you look at one of Cruz's last wins, one of them anyway, it was at the four wide. Yeah. And it just goes to show you, and his car wasn't even running that good. Um, but experience helps in the seat, a good car, which is what he has. They were a little disappointed that the car didn't perform as 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 well as, as they wanted it to. It seemed like they were about four or five hundredths of a second off of the quickest cars. Um, but you, you go back historically, they run good, or at least John Collins has performed well Tommy, when Tommy Johnson was driving his car uh, at elevation. You know, So this is, I think, second highest elevation from, from, uh, from Denver. You know, so, so a lot of the tuners are going to have to speed the blower up. They're going to have to do what they do to the fuel system to make the adjustment and, and maybe, you know, put thinner gaskets step on the compression because there's not as much air at vegas but uh they sure make up for it you wouldn't think that they're at 1100 feet when they go to vegas right <laughs> that's a fact and you know you can tell me if my eyes were lying to me or not but it did seem to me that cruz was staging the car in eliminations a lot more shallow than he normally does and i don't know if that's a sign of you know confidence in the race car underneath him i don't know if that's a sign of of what the crew chief conversation is <laughs> but it it certainly did seem to me 
that um, you know normally he likes to take it likes to take a piece out of the starting line, which is typically what anybody that uh, you know that's their right to do. Like you always say, they can use as much real estate as they want. But <laughs> reaction time wise, he was in the ballpark of everybody else, but he definitely wasn't uh, he he wasn't taking that extra bite. Yeah, and I I think some of that is confidence, and you know one thing about about staging is is drivers for the most part do it when they really feel they have to <laughs> so yeah i'm sure that's going to change you know one of the things i like to see is i mean if ever a guy is going to knock the top light out oh, I mean, yeah. this is the place to do it yeah. you know and and uh i know even the best i mean hey matt hagan uh, arguably he's he's i i just think he's always been one of the top three performing drivers in terms of reaction time and he's one of the drivers that i, I don't even think he left the starting line a couple years ago um, Correct. And if he did, he waited. Yeah, he waited a couple of seconds. But that just goes to show you that, you know, it's it's not an easy thing. It just requires a lot of focus and more focus than your typical, you know, two white events. That's a fact. And yeah, it'll be interesting. And listen, if somebody does double bulb and then roll like double bulb three other cars and then go deep in that one fell swoop motion, that would be the uh, as we like to say the you know the little digitized sunglasses and cigarette come out as the uh, the full gangster move. <laughs> That's the full-on thug, and you're going to hear some clapping in the booth, Brian, if somebody does it, because I know I will be. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It'd be awesome. Well, man, I look forward to seeing you this weekend and certainly, um, you know, getting this season, in my mind, really kind of fully underway out here in Vegas. We have a a limited crowd, but all the seats have been sold out already, so you're going to see a maximum capacity of uh, of our Nevada State crowd regulation and it's going to be a great race with a lot of great energy and certainly get a fun qualifying show to make on friday uh friday night live qualifying coverage and then sunday morning at 10 a.m for our final qualifying show and then eliminations to follow later on on sunday evening eastern so gonna be a great day man hey brian i remember one commercial i'll leave with this there was a commercial i think it was uh, for vegas it, it uh, the guy he had a jamaican accent he said it's not jamaica man it's las vegas man <laughs> so anyway um no other place like it look forward to it all right man see you this weekend thanks tony see you take care and so there you have it our race week show about this denzo spark plugs four wide nationals comes to an end tony petragon lending some insight into many of the storylines we have coming into this great four wide race this weekend there will be no nhra insider podcast next week going to be tied up with some other business but i'll be back at you the week after to recap las vegas and set up the final running of the nhra lucas oil southern nationals at atlanta dragway will be a historic weekend down there in commerce but we're going to make some history four wide in vegas this weekend first As always, thanks for listening to the NHRA Insider Podcast. Love to take you inside the world of Lucas Oil NHRA Drag Racing, E3 Spark Plugs Pro Modified Competition, and of course, the NHRA Camping World Championship Drag Racing Series. I'm Brian Loans, and I will see you looking at you through your TV on FS1 this weekend. Check NHRA.com for all the airtimes, full coverage Friday night, live qualifying, Saturday final qualifying show will air on Sunday morning, and then eliminations will air on Sunday as well. As always, thanks for listening to the NHRA Insider Podcast.